Hello there and welcome to episode 64 of Right Where You're Sitting Now. Joining me in the uh, co-pilot seat is one Mark Satir. How are you doing, sir? Very good. Excellent. Excellent. Diabolically good, actually. Diabolically good. Yeah, well, that's uh, on on, tr- on topic, on trend, as they say. Um, we've, we've finally started to get some more um, entrants for our competition. I'm making a real... It's become an obsession that people don't want a free copy of this book. But, you know, uh, if, you, you know if you're a regular listener, you know where to find the competition. So uh, go go try and grab yourself a free a free copy of Tobias Churton's latest book. But, uh, you know, moving away from that subject. Um, oh, one thing I always forget, again, to mention in the beginning of the episode. I always mention it at the end, but not the beginning. But do please come and... Uh, engage with us uh, on social media uh, instagram it's sitting now youtube where we're going to be you know we'll start uploading more video centric content soon uh, also sitting now um yeah and facebook we have a page i still don't understand how it works so maybe not facebook at the moment i'm going to try and uh, try and uh, get that fixed <laughs> i need to learn what it actually does I, I understand facebook but i need to understand how the page works but uh, yeah so and then twitter sitting now as well so you know we're fairly easy to find um just look for the triangle with the eye um anyway this week we have a guest who we've had on in video form a bit like peter gray um when we first had peter gray on. we've had him on in in video form um but uh, it's someone I've wanted to have on. Actually, I've been looking for a good excuse to have him on for a while. Um, and he's a very personable chap. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to the interview. Um, could you talk to us about what we're talking about today? Well, sitting now, as we forget, we've forgathered ourselves at a ruined chapel. And uh, we're being lit by a gibbous moon waiting for the conclave of, uh, of the abolis before we open the gates of hell. Because open the gates of hell wide, in fact, because we're going to open those for Carl Abrahamson. And uh, on the back of his, uh, his uh, excellent book, actually, his excellent book on the, uh, the character of uh, Anton LaVey, founder and um, head of the Church of Satan founded in 1966 which is a long time ago now and uh we shall we will be exploring that and and if you can stand the the heady mix of uh frankincense and um sulfur in the air we we invite you also to this uh our, uh, our dark meeting oh, there we go let's say throw open the doors and interview carl abramson <laughs> Welcome to the show, Carl Abrahamson. Um, it's great to have you on. Uh, could you give us a brief biography of yourself, please? Yes, and let's keep it brief. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's um, it's always one you know one of those hard questions, like when people ask you which is your favorite movie. You know, yeah. <laughs> I, I have to think for a long time. It's not the same with the biography, of course, because I do remember um, <laughs> where I come from. Uh, so basically, I, I uh, was born and raised and still live in uh, Sweden. And uh, I come from a, a fairly, you know, cultured background. So I grew up with a lot of art and uh, books and uh, an interest in uh, human communication, basically. And that, of course, created an imprint that still affects me today. And I think you know, when you come to uh, teenage years, you try to 
rebel a little bit and you become like a rubber band and you sort of go out in one direction but then the band gets tense and you're pulled back somehow so i think today that i'm in a position where i uh carry on in some kind of you know um family tradition in a way and that i work with art and i work with publishing and and culture in general but it has also been very uh, clearly marked by my own specific interests in I guess we could call it things having to do with the mind. Uh, that could be, you know, religion, philosophy, occultism, of course, uh, but also psychedelics in a way. Um, just things having to do with uh, potential expansion of uh, consciousness and how that can be integrated in, uh, you know, a, a so-called normal life or a normal lifestyle. Um, that's the very, you know, basic overview. But then, of course, I think people know me or associate me with a certain kind of, uh, I guess you could call it contemporary occultism in a way, or culture because of the book that I wrote by that name. And I had, I've had great training in, in different magical environments. I would say the first substantial and perhaps also the most important one was working with, with uh, Topi, the Temple of Psychic Youth, and uh, getting to know Genesis Peorich and, you know, working with... Um, that crew for for a long time topi uh, ended of course in that kind of first phase in 91 92 but we had already done so much and it had meant so much for me as a young magician in a way and then other things uh, took over and i had parallel strains worked with uh, the oto for uh, 30 years and and uh, some golden dawn groups and some other groups also uh, and at the same time i've also had uh, this, I don't know, a need for expression, a need for investigation. That's not merely for my for my own sake. And and uh, ergo, you have, for instance, the project, the Fenris Wolf, which is this journal or anthology that's been coming out basically since 1989. You know, sometimes a li little bit less frequently, but that's still going strong, actually stronger than ever. And that contains what I now call uh, magical anthropology. Uh, meaning, you know, why people are so interested in occultism, why magical thinking is so prevalent, why, you know, why magic exists within human culture. Uh, and also, of course, the concept of occulture that uh, Genesis coined once upon a time. Uh, I love looking into these uh, topics and occurrences where I can see that something comes from a, like a hidden uh, environment, whether it's occult or or just maybe uh, secretive for other reasons, um, and see how those things or those signals seep out into uh, the mainstream or the outer kind of known reality. Um, and apart from that, you know, I'm, I'm basically an author. Uh, I write uh, all the time, uh, love writing books, and I also make uh, films, uh, mainly documentary films, mainly documentary films about artists. So that's another interesting topic too. I'm very interested in, in uh, creativity and why, why people create basically. And that I think is the basic uh, bio. Yeah, that's quite quite expansive. <laughs> <It's great. laughs> um, yeah, I, I was sort of alluding to this before we started uh, rolling the interview, but I was wondering what your take on the kind of, there seems to be a real movement at the moment on social media with um, occultism. You know, there's some there's some, you know, people with some significant followers on places like Instagram and uh, 
uh and the like and tiktok and things like that that there seems to be like a boom in um in occultism there i was wondering what your take on that might be yeah i think it's it's kind of inevitable uh, and i think uh, it perhaps hasn't got anything to do with the social media aspect in itself but of course you know it has to do with that also meaning you can have great outreach and i think what's happened say these past I don't know, 50 years, maybe post Crowley, let's say, so from, from 1947 or the 50s and onwards, we have seen a gradual opening up of things, of traditions, of former secrecy, um, and things have come out, uh, like little flowers coming up from, from uh, seed underground. Uh, maybe it sort of skyrocketed or, or burst out in the 1960s. Uh, but anyway, I think what we're seeing today is kind of a continuation of that process uh, where the um, instead of a few flowers we now have complete gardens of different kinds of flowers stemming from different kinds of cultures and they grow in different kinds of gardens so i think i tend to look at uh, social media phenomena like gardens in a way they carry the same ideas that have previously existed in in books and in, in more traditional uh, media and and um it's what I meant by it's no surprise is that these ideas, they are also sentient in a way. They want to survive just as a human being or other organisms want to survive. And, and sometimes they get together and create clusters. I guess that's what's called, you know, egregores uh, or, or groups or societies that then crossbreed and cross fertilize with, with uh, other strains. It's just a life. It's a life of ideas. And I think these ideas that we could call uh, occult or sort of occult philosophically inclined, they are very strong right now because of the fact that they are completely uh, ingrained. They're part of our survival instinct. And that's something that I've, you know, uh, it's not me developing it, but I've come to that conclusion after having looked at so much of what's going on today from my know, magical anthropological perspective is that why all of these things uh, are happening right now is because we need them. We need these ideas and we may need them in a new shape or cross-fertilized to become stronger and more vital because we need to think in new ways. They might actually be old ways, but that doesn't matter. Uh, to leave this sort of incredible stuck in a rut groove that uh, humanity is in uh, and as we all know, you know, it's not it's not hard to be a pessimist today. No. <laughs> um, and and the reason for that is, of course, we are very deep in this group. And I do think that younger generations, specifically, they are as susceptible to these ideas as you know older people are. But they have uh, a media outreach that is much more vital, at least if we're looking uh, to uh, measuring that by frequency. Then, of course, you can say that too much frequency or, or too many small signals can actually create noise. Sometimes it's better with one strong signal that sends without noise. And that's the dilemma of, of um, social media, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's a new channel. I mean, these these occult magical memes have been, you know, expressing themselves, finding their way, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, in, 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 for decades, for generations, literally for generations yeah. and generations in um art music uh, you know literature 
and uh, and 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 not even necessarily in an explicit way. They're there. They're there if you can see them or you're looking for them or in sometimes very explicit ways. And this is this is a new channel. It's flowing through or, or like a like a putting out a branch or a root. It's a, it's sort of finding it for for good and bad. It's it's finding its way there, and it's inevitable. And I, you know, I think yeah, positive yeah. positive thing in it in in it in and of itself a positive thing even. Absolutely, because I think I think simply that. Um... Um, you know, as people say, you know, the water finds its own level. I think it's a great thing when there, there's a lot of stuff out there so people can find it, whether it, you know, it's intuitive in their uh, life and development processes or whether they're getting it, you know, rammed down their throats. It doesn't really matter. People need to be exposed to uh, new ideas. And the problem, what I meant by noise is also, it's not merely noise within this sort of, you know, occult cluster. It's also incredible amount of noise uh, around that which is just like the normal normal social media noise so it might be hard to to um, uh, find things but usually you know again the water finds its own level and people who are curious and active and aware of the fact that they're active uh, usually never have a problem in finding the right way I mean that's that's happened all along human history you know as the saying used to go when the student is ready the teacher will appear maybe today it's something like you know the student finds eh, perhaps the tiktok channel or a, an instagram account or whatever you know that yeah. puts them on the right path so i mean um we spoke well you spoke briefly about uh, um your sort of occult interest but what kind of drew you personally to the to uh, esoteric i should say writings or you know occult writings or occult practices in general what, what's kind of your occult journey as it were well i think uh, one thing is simply generational and i don't mean like my generation but the the period of life that i was in you know when you're in your teenage years which i was in in the uh, early uh, to mid 80s uh, you're very curious and you're looking for things that are, uh, you know, uh, has the potential to sort of drag you out of this sort of uh, teenage depression or this comatose <laughs> behavior of having to deal with, you know, growing up and stuff like that. And and uh, I come from, a, you know, a background where there was a lot of stuff and, pe and my parents were very open minded. So it was hard for, for me to rebel in a way, you know, I could become like a staunch Christian perhaps to rebel, but, but um, I didn't. Uh, instead, I explored uh, what I could find. And, and at that time, there were occult bookstores in even in Stockholm. And I did find a lot of stuff, Crowley, that I liked, but it was kind of, you know, kind of too technical, you know, when you, you're 14 and start reading Book of the Law, you know, how much do you actually understand? <laughs> uh, things like that. Whereas I found LaVey, found a great resonance there. And of course, the other strain beyond the strictly generational was the fact that the culture that I liked a lot, meaning, you know, having to do with music and underground culture, uh, was very, very intellectual. Uh, I'm thinking specifically, you know, uh, Throbbing Gristle, post-Throbbing Gristle, Psychic TV, uh, England's Hidden Reverse, that kind of territory, where um, the dissemination of, of uh, references was so integrated in the cultural output. You know, it was not a song that wasn't containing some reference and in the sleeve notes and, you know, fan scenes and this and that. And very much of that had to do with with uh, the occult. So you could say that that was really an occulture. And I'm thinking specifically, uh, I was very much into this, uh, you know, this scene. So 
I guess one of the greatest uh, finds for me there was was uh, this new reverence for Austin Spare, for instance. You know, Kenneth Grant had written about Spare, but uh, Kenneth Grant was kind of you know esoteric. It was esoteric stuff for uh, occult people. Whereas when when the Genesis sort of integrated, it became something else. It became part of uh, an occulture that really interested me. So I had uh, I found even found reading uh, Spare's Book of Pleasure more uh, revealing and inspiring than Crowley, for instance. But Crowley, of course, caught up with me uh, later on. So in that sense, um, it was, you know, uh, I was curious, at a curious age, and intelligent enough and sort of English speaking enough to be able to read a lot of this material in, in English. And then, of course, uh, it was part of the uh, subculture that I was already involved in, meaning this kind of experimental music. Yeah, and with, I think also with Spare, it, it's um, it's his artwork, you know, that seduces you, doesn't it? And that, that yeah. speaks to you. And and his writing is, is, is comes sort of after, it comes a bit later. I mean, they, they complement each other very well and you can't really understand one without the other. But for, mm. for me as well, it's it's interesting, you know, the, the um, it's a very seductive, that's the sort of... Um, I don't want to use the word gateway drug into Austin. Yeah, but, but in a way it is, but in a good way, of course. <laughs> I was thinking also of, of uh, other kinds of uh, culture. I mean, it wasn't just books written by uh, occultists and magicians. There were also other, you know, cultural expressions. And I early on, I was, you know, enamored with film and I still am. And of course, when you find Kenneth Anger, for instance, and on these sort of second or third generation VHS cassettes, you know, but still, they're so beautiful and so filled with signal that became like an obsession for me. Uh, I, uh, when I went to university uh, in Stockholm, I, I wrote a, like a dissertation or a thesis about Alistair Crowley's uh, influence in Kenneth Anger's work, you know, so like for me, it's like a complete obsession. So that's another uh, strain uh, after the first phase it bloomed into something that went beyond like a personal interest. It really became something that I lived in uh, 24-7, uh, you know, working with Topi and working with the OTO and, and eventually getting to meet uh, LaVey and Kenneth Anger and, and all these things that were like beyond belief for me at the time. You know, I couldn't understand how these things were happening, but they were. So for me, I think it had to do a lot with uh, investment. I, I, I took it seriously and I invested of my time, uh, not just my dreams and my desires, but I, I worked hard to achieve these little um, uh, steps in a way toward uh, becoming integrated in all these environments that I was so enamored uh, yeah. with. And it's very refreshing, actually. It's not it, it, hearing your, your a positive response. You know, it's it's obviously something you really valued, and uh, yeah. and uh, you 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 haven't fallen into the trap of being, you know, the sort of a petty sectarian. You know, you're not interested. <laughs> no, no, you know, some no, many, uh, you know, some some you know, um, sort of cult celebrities or wannabe cult celebrities. They, um, I think, they out of professional jealousy, they they fall into this sort of petty sectarianism one sort yeah. of another and, and it's so refreshing actually hearing it being such a, a positive 
life-affirming yeah. thing for I'm you. Happy, I'm happy to hear it because uh, it's funny that you say that because for me that's always been very, very important. I've never actually come across, you know, when I've been part of several different groups uh, at the same time, maybe I've come across some, you know, how could you be a member there? How could you be a member there? Uh, but but it, I've never come across any like prejudice that has in any way sort of stopped me. Uh, which is good because then I would have left immediately. And uh, and this kind of open-mindedness, I think, has to do also with the reason why I have become uh, engaged in a way to certain groups and, and I've had you know loyalties, which you do, of course, hasn't been uh, in a cultic way, you know, to efface or sort of uh, make myself go away and just become a little. You know, mindless uh, creature doing someone else's will. On the contrary, I've gone into these environments and groups and and social surroundings with um, great curiosity, of course, but also wanting to learn things. And then after a while, that's just how I function. I also want to give something back. So I've, when I become interested enough, I get engaged in the sense that I want to work with the structure. That's what I did with Topi, and that's what I did with uh, OTO in, in Sweden, and that's what I've done with uh, Church of Satan, which has never been like an order in that traditional sense. But for instance, I translated the Satanic Bible into Swedish and published it in, I think, 1996 or something. So that's what I mean. I, I, I get involved and then I want to be part of it and give something back in a way, but not to the point where I don't exist. On the contrary, where I get uh, more space in a way, more more room. Exactly, and uh, you know, as you said, you just said now, you know, when this, the, when the pupil is ready, the master will appear, and those influences obviously came to you at a time when you were open to them, and, and yeah. there was fertile soil. I mean, Levey himself complains that about people joining the Church of Satan at some points, and purely with the the sort of intention so they could boast of the kudos of of turning their back on it. And it's interesting, yeah. and it's and it's and that happens now. It's still, it's still, it's still, you know, it, it's still very much, you know, something you sort of experience uh, today. And it's not peculiar. It's not. It's not peculiar to the Church of Satan. It's not peculiar to, I don't know, the fraternity of Inner Light. It's not peculiar to the OTO. It's a, it's um it's it's peculiar to the people involved if they come with. Yeah, it's a, it's a particular kind of of uh, I don't know disgruntled psyche in a way that I think exists in any human dynamic. It could be a, a soccer team or a soccer fans or or occultists or, or or any other group dynamic. It's just mm-hmm. that uh, some people. If they don't get immediately gratified on their own terms, then they will turn their back and become even more disgruntled. Well, I think also as well, them they're, they're motivated by their own, um, you know, they've got their own agenda to grind, and yeah. they, they have a predisposed agenda, and they're looking for confirmation of their own biases, basically, yeah. and uh, that says a lot more about the individual and where they're at. And another, and the sad thing is, it's often people who are very original and um, imaginative and creative, and um, and have got the, definitely their own thing going, and that's and that's grand, and mm. uh, you know, and as I say, it should be in a healthy thing and a fertile thing, but uh, it's sort of disingenuous to themselves ultimately because you know you're, you're you're defining yourself in negative terms and not positive terms. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Oh, um, let's let's get on to some uh, some some levee. Uh, I, one, the first thing that struck me actually looking at your book was um, I didn't actually realise that you until reading the book that you had a personal relationship with with levee and you were even married by him. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, mm. exactly. So, could you talk talk about that? Like, how you became involved with Anton Lavey and kind of, you know, how how that relationship blossomed? Yeah, it's it's a it's a beautiful story, and I never get tired of talking about it. So, so it, basically, what happened was so um, I don't know um, magical. I, I'm not afraid to say it. it was for me. It was very magical, and even when I talk about it. Uh, today it is so uh, bizarre you know because basically i told you i was uh, interested and i bought a cult books and i had struck up kind of a resonance with the satanic bible and i think i got the satanic rituals also and i liked it because it was kind of different from crowley it was more to the point i had more like cultural references uh, that i liked and I liked the American trash culture, and I loved, you know, these uh, big bosomed blondes like Jane Mansfield. And then finding out, you know, that Jane Mansfield had had this uh, fling allegedly with LaVey. They they did know each other, but I think they also used each other for PR purposes. But anyway, that that thing was sort of created meltdowns in my teenage or post-teenage mind. It was just so fascinating. And so when I started a band, which was around 1987, what the first record we, we recorded was a song called Sweet Jane, and just like the Lou Reed song. And it was a tribute song or a homage to Jane Mansfield and LaVey and their relationship, you know, um, because I was simply so obsessed by that. At this time, I was working with Topi in Scandinavia and being frequently in touch with, with Genesis. And Genesis um, said that, why don't you send this record to, to LaVey? I think he would appreciate it. And Jen had the address, so we did that. And then I didn't expect anything, basically. But I did get a letter back from Anton LaVey. And that was such a mind blower, not only acknowledging receipt and the fact that he liked the the uh, initiative of the record and that Jane would be very happy and pleased. Uh, things like this keep, uh, you know, keeps her alive. He wrote something like that. And also he made me a member of the Church of Satan. And that to me was, I can't, you know, tell you, it's like completely mind-blowing. And I still have the letter here in my office framed, actually. Um, and so basically we kept in touch, you know, by fax or by letter. And, you know, one year later, approximately, I went over for the first time and uh, got to hang out at the Black House and went out to dinner and and um, listened to him play music. And, of course, uh, during the same trip, uh, I write about that in the book also, uh, LaVey set me up with uh, Kenneth Anger. I had another entry because I was at university at this time writing, having written that thesis about uh, Crowley's influence in Anger's films. So I had some some entries because I really wanted to meet him. It was basically LaVey calling uh, Anger when I was there saying that this Swedish guy is okay. So on the same trip, I, be I met both of these you know, huge icons for me uh, and many other fascinating people as well. Um, and then that's basically how it continued almost every year uh, up until 1993. Um, and we did the same thing, hung out, talked, uh, uh, had dinner, listened to music, watched a lot of movies and, and things like that. And it was just, uh, he was very generous, uh, welcoming, and he was very curious also about what I thought about things and and um, sort of uh, uh, peeves and uh, obsessions that I had. Or, uh, yeah, it felt like, you know, felt like a very friendly atmosphere. And then, of course, um, 
uh, he died in 97 and I didn't have the uh, opportunity to, to uh, travel after 93. He was just preoccupied with other things. So that was sad. I, everybody feels he died uh, too young in a way. And, and that also became uh, kind of a premise for the film that I uh, made a few years ago. It's called Anton LaVey Into the Devil's Den that then bloomed into this book that just came out, uh, meaning I felt and I have felt all throughout these decades uh, since then that, you know, whoa, what the hell happened? It still affects me. And, you know, we talked about things and I remember things. And and uh, it was basically I had the impression that he was like seed sowing. He was planting things, not in any way a negative way. It was, I think, in my interpretation, a way for him of um, securing a legacy in one person of things that he knew that I would be interested in. When I started comparing my experiences with other people, some I knew back then and some were newer acquaintances, but basically people who had met him during this last decade of his life, uh, we shared a lot of experiences. They also had that feeling of, yeah, yeah, he, he, there were things going on between the lines and topics and themes and focus on certain people. And you could say that that's just how friends are. You know, you talk about certain things that you both like, that are, you know. But, but uh, most of these people that I talked to and filmed and who are also in the book um, had that thing where, where uh, we feel that uh, he left us <laughs> a special kind of legacy. Uh, not having to do with, you know, magic or magic tricks or anything, power, magic power. It was more like a, a cultural seed, uh, leaving certain composers, uh, authors, uh, people that he found satanically uh, important. Uh, and um, that's, it, it was such a strong, um, I don't know, um, inclination or interest to find out more about whether these other people had had the same experience that it actually turned into these uh, two projects the film and the book that just came out so for me it's like it's you know in a way become an obsession but it's been a very very creative and very very pleasant obsession i have to say i, I worked with it a lot but it's been worth every uh, every moment of it and i hope also that i've done uh, our friendship justice by you know, making this film and this book. Maybe that's what he had in mind, you know, 30 years ago. <laughs> that, that, you know, maybe one day Carl will make a film and write a book. Who knows? Well, actually, I mean, it's, I mean I'm really intrigued by you saying that because when I was reading your book, Mr. Abramson, I mean, what I appreciated so much about it is that you know, if I um, if I maybe be given the liberty, I've read stuff before about uh, Levey, and it, it sort of wasn't really what I wanted. It was somehow disappointing, or didn't have the depth, or mm -hmm. whatever. But you, your book really is is the antidote to that. It really, you know, I was thinking as I was reading that to really sort of sit back and think, step back from myself a bit, and think, well, why is this working so well? Why is this book? And then partly, um, it's partly your own experiences and your own actually unique you know your your positive uh, approach to them but also you know they it's the part of it i think is because at the time time has passed we can step back and look at the a wider picture and get a better perspective on on levey his work his life and yeah. his and his and as a figure a cultural and philosophical figure the magical uh, aspects 
I'm not um, devaluing those at all. Absolutely quite the opposite. But it's interesting if you try to disentangle uh, um, and try to just look in through the lens of a, a, a cultural and a philosophical figure, uh, an influencer, as we would use it in terms of yeah. you, you, you get a much in, uh, better uh, perspective. Uh, and that's a wonderful way in, I think. Mm -hmm. Thank you. No, I'm very happy to hear that because um, making the film was more, uh, a film is more of a form, you know, it's kind of a set form. And for instance, you, you cannot have all of the material that I had uh, because it would be too long of a film. And there are certain, you know, uh, ways you go about making this film. And I was happy about that. But of course, it dawned on me even during the process that, whoa, kill your darlings. You know, I, oh, I would love to have this inside. So that was also another um, uh, impetus or, or uh, incentive to carry on with the project in a way. But not only that, you know, it was just also uh, this thing where I think um, that's one of the reasons why I think the book works well, because it's so obviously uh, subjective. It has no uh, uh, aspirations towards, you know, what you could call like an, a journalistic, journalistic objectivity. Uh, I am clear from the beginning with the fact that this is like the first few uh, what is it, the five chapters in the beginning where I sort of write about my experiences, it's a subjective story and people get that immediately. And then with the people in general, I had these sort of standard questions to to um, to try to focus basically. Otherwise it could have expanded <laughs> even more into different, uh, in different directions. Uh, but that also, uh, that focused on their subjective experiences. So I think that's, I don't know if I can call it endearing in a way. It's, it's a kind of a uh, quagmire because if you want to be a journalist or a writer writing about something, you're taught to, well, you know, should be a little bit more objective and you should, why aren't there any critical voices, etc. But that's not interesting for me because I think all those critical voices, they've had their you know, exposure for a long time. And I think, uh, I don't think it's as, like I'm spreading too much sunshine either. It's just very subjective. And my experiences, they were always great. They were highly inspiring. And, and as were the one, uh, ones that the people I interviewed were. So I may have uh, chosen uh, people on my team in a way, but why not? You know, because their stories are so uh, intriguing. And I hope that the, the mass, the actual cluster of everything is inspiring to people. And that's actually what I've heard so far. I mean, it's just been out for whatever it is, a week or two. Uh, but the feedback I'm getting is that uh, it brings new stuff to the table and, and uh, it does so in an inspirational or inspiring way. And that makes me very happy, of course. Yeah, I think that's one of the, uh, that's the other thing that works so well from, from, from my experience of reading is the, the way that you, it, it, it's rounded out by so many other voices you know yeah it, it, that fleshes it out you know and that, that gives it uh, a, a, an extra dimensions literally you know it, different aspects of, of people's experiences and approaches and they're actually you know that that worked really really well that gave it actually in a strange uh, you know i mean their own that's their own personal experiences but actually it, it shows that in the round uh, you know you, you get a, a broader picture Yes. Uh, yes, and there's some, and there's something actually more um, objective about that in a way. 
Yeah, 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 you could say that. Uh, and I mean, it's just, um, it was um, uh, a very defined space and it was a very defined time, meaning that many of these uh, meetings, they, they took place at the Black House or uh, at dinner at restaurant, but we always returned to the Black House. So that was like the center. And it was the same for all of these people. Uh, because of the fact that he was, you know, in, in failing health and not too much energy and he felt very safe and comfortable at home. So that that's like a no brainer also. And what I mean by the time is that uh, it was a time in his life. He didn't know that it was like end times. And he had um, the last time I uh, met him in person, uh, Blanche, his uh, partner, was just uh, pregnant and about to give birth a couple of months later. So he was very happy about that. That was like a vitalizing thing. And he got to have, uh, I guess, uh, four four years with uh, the son, Xerxes. So that was very good. But still, the times that all of us had, they were defined uh, by him, you know, saying that, you know, come at eight o'clock and we'll go out for dinner and then we we'll come back. And then you probably didn't leave the black house until like eight or nine in the morning because they were active in the nighttime. So the time and the space were uh, defined and also confined to, to these things. And that's another reason why it's so easy to compare experiences, because if it had been like in 1969 it could have been at some you know convention in in chicago or at a group ritual in in new york or in the black house or um, a much more um, chaotic in a way scene in which it can be hard to discern who a person actually is because it's just too much going on but at this time uh, i think also deliberate on lavey's side he fe felt calm and controlled and safe and no one was let in that wasn't sort of pre-approved in a way by some kind of communication or some kind of cultural output basically passing a few tests by what you've done you know kind of meritocracy in a way and for me it was like you know uh, the Fenris Wolf had just come out and I've made uh, the records and and that first record with uh, Genesis and Paula the at Stockholm uh, CD uh, and things like that, meaning I was a, um, a mover and a shaker in a way. I was producing things. So that was also like a ticket into to this, this world. And it was the same for most of these people. And once you were there, uh, it was basically the same, same things going on. But it was so inspiring for all of these people, including me, to be uh, allowed to be there in a way, but it wasn't just like you know allowed like if we were some kind of objects of of scrutiny from his side. He was very warm. He was very generous, very welcoming, and also genuinely curious. I had I have to say. Mm. Interesting. So I mean, we've had some um, uh, detractors. Yeah, naysayers on in the past <laughs> um, on this show. Uh, uh, one example I could say is uh, Nicholas Shrek, who is not right. is not a fan of mr levey um but we also had uh you know um isaac bomwitz as well who was right. was was more of a fan i'd say but um but the, the the thing they both brought up and and i've heard brought up elsewhere is um anton levey isn't a quote-unquote proper magician or a proper occultist um he was more of a showman i was wondering about your kind of take on that like do you see him as a quote-unquote proper occultist or uh, was he more 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 a kind of um 
you know uh, more of a celebrity i guess right well i i thank you for the question i i love that question and i i do have uh my my own uh, sort of experience with that. I would say he's he's uh, probably among the very finest magicians I've ever met, and I've met a few actually. And the thing is that um, I don't need to be sort of antithetical and go to Freck or possibly Bonowitz or or other people of that kind of um, uh, mind frame. You know they're critical, so you have to take that into account. Uh, but what I mean is that, and that's also uh, one of the chapters in the book is the one called uh, Anton Lavey, magical innovator. I mean, already from before the Magic Circle, which was the group before the Church of Satan, he was very interested in in uh, magic, and he in the film. Uh, there's uh, actually video of him talking about, you know, how he'd read all of these old occult books and stuff like that, but found that it didn't really work. And he came to this uh, conclusion that you have to be on the side of the forces that you want to, um, I don't know, use or work with in a way. And it's so funny because he describes it sort of like in a gangster movie. <laughs> you know, you have to show your loyalty and then you can have a loyalty back and, you know, a sense of... Uh, uh, respect and courtesy that's mutual and you know but that's that's you know how he defined it uh, back then in the magic circle which was pre-church of satan um, he was doing a lot of experimentation intellectual studies also together with other people uh, holding uh, lectures and you know going through a lot of uh, weird stuff including um uh, the literature of of uh, not only of Lovecraft, but basically coming from the pulp tradition. Uh, Frank Belknap Long, for instance, was a, a key influence here, plus German Expressionist films, etc. And these sort of cultural uh, inputs uh, became the foundation of like the uh, aesthetic structure of the Church of Satan. Uh, and then, of course, in the Church of Satan, you suddenly, you know, wham, bam, brought in this provocative term and a kind of a diabolical lore and tying it in with tradition of, of uh, opposition and also, also in a way, anti-Christian or anti-monotheist uh, perspectives. But that was, wasn't, you know, the only thing. Uh, during this time, you know, as he wrote about in the Satanic Bible that came out in 69, there was, you know, lesser magic, which you could call, you know, some kind of Machiavellian or manipulative magic. And there was also higher magic, greater magic, meaning full-on ritual magic uh, for purposes and emotional investment in the moment. He was uh, greatly influenced by uh, by uh, Spare, uh, by Freud. He was greatly influenced by Crowley, much more than he uh, cared to, you know, uh, let it be known at the time. But Anger uh, told me that uh, himself, and Anger lent him books. And, you know, he was very, very hardcore uh, in his magical explorations. And the Church of Satan was the... Uh, the, the workshop, the, the, the toolbox that uh, allowed for that. So even back then, you know, he, he uh, created a magician uh, by taking these different uh, strains uh, and working with it for his own benefit. Then you, you can say that, okay, so he went into some kind of 
seclusion in a way in the mid 70s because it was too much attention etc etc and he focused on just leading a good life and i think that's where it comes from that you know he didn't really do anything but he had just come from like 15 years of hardcore magical activities is solo and in group form with all of what that entails in terms of negative group dynamics and and you know chaos whatever um, but then he also after the 70s, meaning in the 80s and onwards, drifted into uh, the logical uh, progression of Satanism, which is a massive kind of egotism. So he drifted back in a way into himself and, and constructed magics that are amazing. And that's one of the chapters in the book, the one called uh, Anton LaVey, Magical Innovator. Uh, all of these concepts that he brought to I don't know, I guess we could call it our table, the table of the people who are occultly inclined and who want to work with techniques and, um, you know, uh, specific things. He brought in um, working with your own preferred cultural expression. He was a musician by profession and he, he used m music not only in his ritual, but music as his ritual, and I've I've seen that performed or you know uh, played out, and it was very 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 powerful. So I would say that uh, he may not have been a in a, a traditionalist in some kind of you know something stemming from Western ceremonial traditions. He was just a freewheeling, uh, pragmatic guy who took magic very very seriously, but he disliked what he called the occultniks, the people who were too stuck in a rut in within structures or traditions or, you know, having this need to be subjugated to a pyramidal uh, hierarchy. So I think that uh, he was so innovative that people like the ones you mentioned or perhaps even, you know, other people also, they can't get it simply. And it's not because I'm, I'm not saying they're stupid. It's just that he brought so much new stuff to the table that these people can't relate. And that's in a way what I hope to, to uh, do with the book is to give it a sense of context, what it actually is. It isn't just, you know, him playing some old tunes on the synthesizer. He was he was doing ritual at the time. And also, like you mentioned, I actually got married uh, with my girlfriend at the time. And I had the chance to be in the, the ritual chamber and see him, you know, perform ritual. And it was, uh, <laughs> I don't know, it was terrifyingly powerful, I have to say. Uh, you could argue that you, I was young and open-minded and this and that, and I had great respect. That may be the case, but I still remember it as being incredibly uh, powerful. And that also was very, very inspiring. Yeah, I mean, the way I, I, I've tended to sort of look at it, and I might be right and wrong, um, is like, like we were saying earlier, you know, the, these new channels present themselves and they and the um, the meme or the, you know, sort of flows into it, it will find its way. And, um, you know, LeVay was was very interested in film, you know, he's yeah. a theatrical, you know, character, you know, and the he adopted these these roles or these um, these these guys is uh, in, with absolute sincerity you know and uh, and that's how he expressed himself and that's how he and he understood as well the psychology of like having a certain very distinct appearance and um, and conveying that 
Um, Absolutely. And let's not forget that he actually came from, you know, a circus or, or a sideshow or carnival uh, background. We had seen how these things work, you know, on this, what he called the lesser magic level, which is basically mani manipulation, how you can affect people uh, by appearance, by uh, behavior, uh, which is basically psychology, you know. But um, some people have argued that that's all it was. But I would argue that's not the case. He was also very interested in ritual magic, and he had a very psychologically savvy way of looking at this. He wasn't religious in that sense. Yeah, I could argue that Crowley had a kind of a religious approach to it. You know, he claimed to be very empirical, perhaps so, but his mind was religious. Whereas I would say that Lavey was a lot more rational, yet he had respect for the fact that if you do certain things and invest a lot of emotion in it, things will happen. And it's kind of inexplicable how that happens, but sometimes you don't need to know. You don't have to be an empiricist. You can just be a magician, plain and simple. Mm. Yeah, interesting. I wonder. I mean, you were talking about him being a, a more of a, a freewheeling kind of um, magician. I mean, that certainly shows up in his his own writings, where he he does tend to borrow quite heavily. It, it reminds me a little bit of um, of Grant, a little bit of Kenneth Grant. He has this kind of uh, he takes one system and then sort of combines it with with narrative fiction, for example, like Lovecraft. I mean, that's the obvious you know crossover between grant and levey isn't it that they both uh <clears throat> they both kind of incorporated lovecraft into their work yeah absolutely and i think that's brilliant you know on, on both these gentlemen's uh, part because uh, why should we exclude anything that elevates us in the moment of ritual or in life so i think that all of these things it could be I'm also very, very fascinated by one specific story uh, by uh, this American filmmaker, Larry Wessel. He's in the book, and he met LaVey, you know, similarly. And he also had this moment uh, late at night uh, sometime uh, at the Black House where LaVey took out a book and read this, um, this poem, an American poet called, uh, I think, Don Blanding. Uh, and it's just this, this uh, you know, kind of funny poem about uh, someone who talks about his dream house, what his dream house would be, and it would be filled with things from his journeys and exotic things and stories and stuff like that. And, and um, that's an example of uh, one moment in space and time where LaVey read something to this guy, you know. And now, again, uh, whatever it is, like so many decades later, Larry has just wrapped up a film that he has structured around uh, that poem. Uh, he calls it Larry Wessel's Palace of Wonders. And it's basically him interviewing a lot of weird people, but he looks at it as his, you know, as his dream house filled with these things. And it came from the impetus of that very uh, space, that very time when LaVey read him this poem. So you see that, that, culture, even small things like uh, fragments of a book, fragments of a poem, can have the power to linger on, uh, you know, in the psyches of people and affect them much, much, much later. And I would argue much more than, you know, diligently performing the banishing ritual of the pentagram or delving into the Abramelin working or, you know, something like that. Uh, because, um, Perhaps the greatest magic 
lies in the human psyche and how that is affected also by emotional spheres and in our interactions with other people. And again, you know, both Grant and LaVey and, you know, many other people also love this kind of pulpy fiction um, that is now, I guess, called cosmic horror, <laughs> which is a great term, uh, where things are sort of seeping in from the unknown, the true unknown, uh, because that was happening at that time, you know. Uh, man didn't land on the moon, uh, allegedly, until 1969. So before that, you had these sort of uh, explorations of space, and before that, the engineers who were working and developing space travel, they had all been, you know, fed with pulp fiction. They were kids who read, you know, weird tales and all of these things, science fiction magazines, uh, who were inspired by these incredible stories of, of uh, uh, space travel. And they were the people who actually uh, made it happen. A bit like Jack Parsons is another obvious example yeah, there. Of uh, course, of course. And it's, it's, uh, it's also interesting to, to to reflect on the fact that, you know, Lovecraft and uh, you know, uh, it's been published now. It's most it's almost tweedy with respectability, but published by um, Penguin, Penguin. Yeah. You know, yeah, as, as as classics. Something I would never, <laughs> something I would never believe would be possible not that long ago. It, it's it, you know, but but it's endured, and I think you know, it, and it's also curious reflecting on it that um, with Kenneth Grant and um, uh, Levey that the the H.P. Lovecraft thing hasn't been really sort of explored more. I mean, you know, LeVay had the this order of the trapezoid, and the yeah. and the shining trapezoid, of course, appears in the uh, Lovecraft's uh, or the Haunter of the Dark. And uh, I mean, uh, it's it's curious that, that 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 hasn't been sort of thrashed out more. I mean, there's a there's a couple of books in there, I'm sure, and. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's also, it's seeped through. I mean, I'm not saying that it seeped through them specifically, meaning Grant and, and LaVey, but I mean, uh, the French author Michel Houlebecq, who is completely, you know, highbrow, in a way it's written substantially about Lovecraft, even, it's even included in one of the, as you say, the Penguin editions. Uh, so it is absolutely out there in the mainstream. And um, this this uh, series that streamed a while ago called uh, Lovecraft county i think and and basically it's 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 around there i mean and the reason again i think why these things um uh, pop up at certain times it's because the cu culture or the unconscious part of culture is ready for it uh, meaning that um Cosmic horror might not be such a bad term after all, because we always dread the unknown, and, you know, and we, when we have too m many problems in our daily grind, which that was actually happening, although the 50s were, you know, booming in a way, the 40s were completely affected by uh, world wars and, you know, very hard times. And before that, the 30s also with financial depression and, you know, all kinds of things. The 50s were booming economically, but then, of course, you had the Cold War happening. So there was always this kind of um, negative tension going on. And what do you do then in terms of escapism? Well, you look beyond that. You look up instead and you dream and you read science fiction. And most of the science fiction is actually not that, you know, 
gay or happy and you know filled with sunshine and you know getting to a new planet and it's all lovely it's 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 fucking dire and catastrophe and and aliens and disaster and die, death in space you know so it's really a kind of a, a zeitgeist thing uh, that i think has had um, escapistic potential you know for for generations and i think that's what these people like LaVey and Grant picked up, you know, of course, because it affected them, but not exclusively. It also affected other kids, other young people uh, in similar ways. But the Grant and LaVey, they both could contextualize it and also integrate it. I mean, LaVey certainly did uh, in, in their own rituals even. And that goes for, the, for certain kinds of movies too, you know, the film noir aesthetic, uh, the German expressionist aesthetic, um, uh, the Tesla coil uh, working with electricity, which is as a real you know physical force in the ritual chamber, lighting things, uh, basically creating a total environment or a space that is so conducive for the kind of mind frame or emotional uh, structure that you want to have in that particular ritual. So it's, it's these elaborate. Uh, well, you could call it memes in a way also that were integrated in uh, something much greater as, as, as uh, an ingredient in a powerful dish. Yeah, I mean, uh, as, so as, as Rapon suggests, you know, the artist is the antenna of the, of the race, I think he says. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. So <clears throat> going back to LaVey a bit, why you know, he has this uh, kind of occult knowledge and the kind of... Uh, you know, a, a school in somewhat by the time that he forms the Order of the Trapezoid and the Church of Satan. Um, why do you think he sort of resonated so much with the kind of concept of Satan? Why Why do you think he chose Satan as his uh, as his uh, ride or die, as they say? Yeah, I think it's, uh, uh, to keep it simple, I would say it's a twofold thing. One is a, a genuine appreciation of the controversy and, you know, potentially uh, the powerful thing of uh, someone who is the ultimate outsider. You know, if you're willingly an outsider, you can be quite powerful. If you're an unwilling outsider, that basically means that you're bullied and sort of ostracized. And that's a negative thing. But the willing outsider is powerful because people fear what's outside. So you can take that fear and make turn it into energy that can be quite constructive and, and uh, powerful. And also then you have the romantic diabolical lore of history uh, not only from the monotheist cultures but from all over the world there's always been that kind of trickster figure in in each culture and it has been uh, ultimately event you know an, a benevolent one because uh, i tend to look at it as, as satan being a part of the uh, immune system of the culture in question. Uh, Satan is the adversary, the opposer, the critical one pointing at what's wrong, at the hypocrisy, at people's vanities, at all these things uh, that might actually, if people act on it, uh, can turn the culture into a more healthy and strong organism. Uh, that, of course, is a kind of controversial uh, standpoint because if you talk to a monotheist it's just like very hard because they will say no 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 it's deception it's all evil evil and you get involved in this sort of moronic psychotic discussions uh, but so that's one way the historical traditional uh, diabolical lore 
uh, and the psychology of the outsider. That's one thing. But then also, uh, as was mentioned, he came from a carny background. He knew how to get attention and he wanted attention. He wanted to have a group based on what the uh, the so-called magic circle had been working with for many, many years, all throughout the 60s. Uh, and now he wanted to profit from the fact that he was very knowledgeable. And he had started write, writing essays for their newsletter, um, um, Cloven Hoof in the Church of Satan. And, and uh, when that was going, uh, he realized that it was a good thing because he got a lot of attention. If you have someone creating the Church of Satan in San Francisco in the 1960s, where all eyes were on San Francisco anyway, you know, uh, you will get a lot of attention. And if you want it, that's good. If you don't want it, it's probably bad. But he wanted it. He wanted to be on TV, and radio, and all these shows, and getting paid to be interviewed, having uh, journalists and photographers from all over the world coming to his black house and, and sort of spreading the information and not only about what they were doing that evening, but also about the philosophy, you know, there's a kind of a dissemination that also made him money. And then a couple of years later in 69, there was the satanic Bible. And that's just like, um, uh, bringing on more of, of, of uh, this controversy that turned out to be very, very profitable yet. That doesn't mean that it's insubstantial. He, I think, I think that he orchestrated this and strategized this in a very good way. And I think also everything comes with a price tag. It comes with a price. And that hit him, I think, in the mid-70s uh, when it was, had simply been too much, too intense a uh, time during this, let's call it the first decade. Uh, too much exposure, uh, too many, you know, negative personal dynamics and, you know, live and learn and, and you know, you can't, you know, for, force on forever. So I think that first uh, decade from 66, maybe up to 76, was uh, a learning experience for him, but it also made him a lot of money. And, and, you know, there were members, the books were selling, and he was just on a roll, basically. Mm. You could say, in a way, Crody was similar in the way he approached the kind of publicization of his work. You know, there were he Crody also enjoyed the um, you know to be in the public eye. He enjoyed being paid to go and speak at places. He you know he he enjoyed that kind of uh, sort of using celebrity in a way to kind of get his message across. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I don't think that's uh, ingrained in in all <laughs> occultists it's just a one kind of special you know brand and i think it has to do with uh, i don't know you could call it creative neurosis in a way crowley i think was actually more of an uh, actor you know with an actor's neurosis he wanted attention uh, like all the time like some actors do i'm not saying all of them are like this but but it's something like being on stage and um demanding attention in a way uh, whereas LaVey I think was a little bit more of a as again as we said a word that I tried to avoid but a showman he was a little bit more strategic and appeared at times in his robe and with his plastic horns and these things when the photographers were there he wasn't on uh, he wasn't so neurotic that he had to demand attention all the time he popped up very much like uh, I don't know uh, a PR savvy uh, person 
Yeah. And I think that that spotlight can be is very much a two-edged sword as well, and it's something yes. that can easily sort of slip out of control and 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 inevitably will at some point. I mean, for what it's worth, I mean the my 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 tendency in when thinking about Satanism as a sort of um, philosophical idea is very much based on. 18th you know there's a 19th century gothic romanticism the romantic anarchist the the especially in europe in the 1890s naughty 90s the the satan the satan of felicine ropes of uh baudelaire of uh you know um of, of wiesmans it's the you know when christianity becomes this deadening force this sort of suffocating force you know the opposite to that the 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 opposition becomes a liberator you know, the... Absolutely. And that was completely ingrained in, in LaVey's uh, brand of Satanism. But he also brought something else to the table. And that's something that happened during the first uh, half of the of the 20th century. And that was the emergence of, of uh, psychology and the emergence of psychoanal psychoanalysts. Uh, an analysis, and I mean, he was a self-professed Freudian. You know, he also liked Jung and you know, and, and Wilhelm Reich. And he was very savvy about you know what they had actually written about. And and, and that said, and also he had worked in the circus. And, he, and one of the things that he did there was he worked with the big cats, uh, lions, tigers. For a long time, he even had a lion at home. You know, um, so basically, he had a great affinity for animals, uh, not necessarily ferocious ones, but, you know, animals in general. And he, one of the key tenets is that uh, man is, is just another animal, and, and we are uh, driven by the same kind of drives as animals do. We have a kind of superstructure that is intellectual, but that can be very deceiving. And then, of course, you have the psychological or psychoanalytical approach, whereas you have to uh, in a way, as Jung said, you know, you have to acknowledge your dark side and you have to work with it. Otherwise, it will become, you know, almost demonic and make you do things that you actually don't want to do because of the fact that you're not doing things that you want to do. And and uh, Freud was, of course, with his uh, uh, sexual theories, uh, LaVey completely agreed with them and said that you have to be sexually, you know, free, sexually honest, sexually unrestrained, uh, as long as you're you're with consenting people, you should do whatever you feel that you want to do. Uh, that was very radical, even in, you know, the so-called free love 1960s of San Francisco, because it's not really free love if you're just high and having sex with someone in Golden Gate Park. But what they were doing in the Church of Satan was like real experimentation to get to know themselves uh, much, much better, you know, what they, they really enjoyed. So it's also a kind of an Epicurean philosophy where it's all about uh, pleasure, feeling good, being strong, all these life-affirming things. And, and uh, we haven't really seen much of that in traditional occultism. It has always had some kind of strange religious residue uh, from Christianity or other things. Even Crowley has that. You know, Crowley was basically, you know, a Dionysian in, in the Nietzschean sense. Uh, but there was always some kind of, uh, I don't know, it, it's not moralism. I mean, some people would laugh when I call Crowley a moralist, but he was just a, a bit older. He was, he was stemming from the 19th century, whereas LaVey was obviously a 20th century man. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, Crowley was obviously a Victorian. He was born in the Victorian age, you know, so he, he was, you know, the sort of his, his, his feet, <laughs> yeah, as it's yeah. to speak, were, were sort of grounded in that. So he's sort of coming from that 
perspective. I mean, yeah, people, you know, and funny enough, actually, Crowley is very ethical. I mean, he constantly writes about what belief, the importance of beliefs and values and having your own beliefs and, and, and uh, you know, he's, he's, he's constantly doing that. But that would take us off the point, I suppose. But I, I just sort of sat thinking about it. The um, and it's it's going to sound very strange at first, but to, you know, in the eighteen nineties, you had it sounds weird thinking of it as a, a satanic in a, in a uh, novel, but you had um, worlds, the picture of Dorian Gray, and also uh, the strange case of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, and yeah. that, and, that, and the themes in those are, are, are about that duality, that that duality bubbling to the surface, and in and, in, and of course in. The early 1901, I think it was, you had Freud's in the interpretation of dreams. Yeah. And it seems amazing that those books actually were sort of, there's something in the air. I mean, people have said that before. There's something in the air, and that duality is sort of bubbling up, but also it's demanding that that need to reconcile it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And again, I think that that's where, where Lave was really intelligent. And, and I think that whether that was consciously so or unconsciously so, that's kind of besides the point because we will never know that. But what I mean is that. Uh, culture dictates. Uh, we are not really dictated by, you know, morality or or by passing fads or trends or moralistic uh, uh, incentives. It's really cultural um, expressions that form and decide the zeitgeist on uh, a longer term. Like you met these examples that you mentioned, they are basically two of them are. Uh, fictional uh, and one is let's call it experimental at the time uh, so meaning they were not you know uh, by authorities in any way saying this is how it is but still they were incredibly powerful and they still are in their uh, definition again like you mentioned that uh, Ezra Pound quote like, like little antennae that these people uh, caught things with uh, probably not consciously. They just sort of took whatever they felt in and expressed it in their own words. And that still resonates. And and again, you know, I think that LaVey was absolutely uh, consciously aware of it. I, I, I wouldn't swear on it. I wouldn't bet on it. But I think he used culture very much <clears throat> to affect change. Uh, why else would he have name dropped so many people who were important to him in his books, you know, there are these uh, dedication lists in, you know, um, the Satanic Witch and in the Satanic Rituals and, you know, um, many of these books. Um, and in his essays, which are basically just, you know, short and quite humorous. But there's plenty of stuff there that's like little traces for some future detective to, you know, join the dots in this mystery that is LaVeyan Satanism. And some things may appear to be completely disparate or even contradictory, but when you look at it and sort of scratch the surface, you realize, whoa, this really makes sense in the context of this other thing. And you could argue also that uh, it's just one man, one mind, one life's experience, and he wants to share what's been good for him. Uh, and that may also be the whole truth in a way. But if so, that man was very, very powerful and intelligent to the extent that we could absolutely call him objectively a magician because he affects change in accordance with uh, his will. Mm. Um, one thing I've, I was kind of interested in talking to you about was um, 
how do you feel Levey's uh, philosophies kind of being carried forward post his death? I mean, obviously we had the uh, the Aquino split, um, mm-hmm. and I'd like to actually hear your thoughts on you know maybe how he responded to that and you know how that affected him the you know the Templar set forming and all of this kind of thing. And but um, but really, how do you feel? I mean, do you feel the his philosophy is being well represented? these days by the church of satan and maybe by the temple of set uh yeah i I can only speak from my own experience and you know because i've always sort of um uh, hung out with or or befriended and stayed friends with uh, some people in the church of satan and they they are you know still great friends and have great respect for what they're doing and they are doing intelligent things in the sense that they are also uh focusing on cultural promotion no demagogia uh, it's just, you know, uh, the website is filled with stuff constantly, you know, promoting cultural things that are relevant to them and also adding things from the archive, uh, basically creating uh, something that is more than just a website for for uh, members. Uh, it is creating a kind of an egregore. And I think maybe uh, things like my book and also the book that I published a couple of years ago, called uh, California Infernal. That's just a photo book with a with, uh, German paparazzo who took a lot of pictures of of LaVey and Jen Mansfield and stuff like that. All of these things sort of gel together in a kind of an egregorian way, uh, little cells of a body in a way. So I think what the Church of Satan are doing is that they're aware of how these things work. And I think they're doing a great job. You know, they, they uh, represent it. They see to it that... Um, you know, his, his legacy and his memory is, is respected, but also to infuse things with new blood, they are also adding things to the canon. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a book uh, by Bob Johnson called The Satanic Warlock, uh, which is like a follow-up, I guess, or a complementary volume to The Satanic Witch that actually came out in 1971 first. So uh, it's, it's a living uh, thing. It's a living, uh, it's a group that's alive. Uh, Temple of Set, I, I, I don't know. I had some, you know, personal um, information, um, and I think that it could be true. Um, you never know because everyone is dead or half dead, or you know, it's been a lot, lot of water under these bridges. But basically, it, it could be true because of the fact that many of these rifts um, in. Uh, you know, it's not only the occult world, but in any world that become almost mythologized. You know, he broke away and created his own. That, that's what people do. But what is the, you know, the spark of that thing? Is it like huge differences in approach? Not really. I think what happened, and, and this is, you know, my uh, carrying on a speculation was that that Aquino had actually uh, hit on LaVey. You know, like in a bisexual way, and Lavey had kindly, uh, politely declined the offer, and that became kind of a. It's hard for people to be sexually or emotionally uh, denied. You know, um, that's something we all have experience of in, at some point in life. And so, whether that's true or not, I don't know. I don't want to be the the sort of uh, teller of tall tales. But anyway, they broke away, and one of the key things that uh, it's different is Aquino's 
integration of something that could be called an anthropomorphic or a more concrete devil figure or a you know a setian entity or you can call it whatever you want to meaning that that's a real thing whereas for the church of satan and lave it was always a symbolic thing certainly there's a dark force in nature uh, but it doesn't take on this mythologized romanticized form uh, and then we have later on um the um, you know the the younger satanists who are doing uh, you know satanic temple you know some other people and they are um, they have created their own baton in a way they're not running with the old baton they've created their own baton and they are focusing on something uh, completely different than the church of satan and yet they call themselves satanists and i think in a way it's inevitable and I think it's it's healthy it, the one doesn't take away from the other um, I think there will always be you know young bucks or, or young people coming up uh, claiming that you know the old is dead and gone and it's only the new that's viable and, and, and vital um, I've had uh, I have nothing negative to say about them personally uh, they uh, for instance show my documentary about LaVey on their uh, Satanic Temple uh, TV station uh, online. And um, I've been interviewed there a couple of times and, and uh, I have no problem with that. It's just a different thing, you know, same but different in a way. Um, I don't know what their take on the, the Satan figure is, whether they believe in, you know, um, some kind of anthropomorphic thing. I haven't really gone down that path uh, too much. But the people I've been involved with have been very sympathetic and, and nice to me. So that's that's all I can say about that. And, you know, this kind of dynamic will always carry on. You know, uh, when there will be in 10 years time, there will be some new group saying that, you know, the satanic temple are complete, you know, conservative assholes. Yeah, it's quite refreshing to hear that, though, because, I mean, uh, you could, I mean, this goes all the way back to, you know, mainstream Christianity as well. There's this sort of feeling that groups uh, certainly seem to have that, you know, the, you can't have more than one group doing, you know, uh, one particular thing. You know, there's this sort of mutual exclusivity kind of problem, yeah. isn't there? Especially in the occult, you know, oh, that group, they're doing it wrong, you know, that kind of thing. It's quite refreshing to hear someone say, <laughs> actually, it's great, you know, that everyone's doing the, you know, everyone's putting their own spin on this kind of thing and they can all kind of coexist peacefully kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, there's really nothing you can do to stop it either, you know? <laughs> this is not yeah. like, you know, what what can you do? Oh, they're waving the wand the wrong way, you know, call the police. You know, what can you do? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, I, I was actually, one thing that just came to mind whilst you were talking about other groups and um, there's obviously a, a a whole other form of Satanism as well that's become a bit more um, a bit more prevalent in the news um, recently. A more sinister f uh, form of Satanism, I'd say. Um, have you ever come across the groups like I don't know, the Order of Nine Angles, that kind of thing? I mean, they that that seems to be a, 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 unfortunately. It seems to kind of every now and then it, people will sort of perceive Levey's Satanism in the same kind of uh you know in the same fold as the, as this more kind of uh i don't know what you'd call it um sinister satanism i guess uh right 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 yeah no it, it's been a long time because the the thing is that um uh, the fenris wolf became uh my um i don't know my calling card in a way but also uh, I wanted things for it, and I wanted to have a wide variety of things. So I can remember being in touch with with uh, Order of the Nine Angles, sort of in the late 80s. 
that they were also very networking. And I think there, you know, there was a lot of, of, of uh, information just uh, swimming about in, in newsletters and stuff like that, you know, Topi and IoT and in newsletters from occult bookstores. And, and uh, so I think that uh, in, uh, could it be in the, I think it's Finnish Wolf number three, uh, that there's something by by uh, order of nine angles, but that was that came out in the 1993s, so it was still a long time. And since then, I haven't really uh, followed what's happening with that kind of sinister strain. Usually, it's just very very few people, yeah. and these few people can be very eloquent and and uh, ambitious and have a lot of signal, especially now in in internet times, so that sometimes things appear to be much more than it actually is. Uh, that I think is all I have to say about that because I, I'm not too savvy about what's going on. Um, maybe uh, things like that also uh, pop up. Um, just thinking uh, almost symbiotically with when there's some kind of satanic panic going on. Mm. It's like uh, when uh, there's uh, someone trying to rip open a wound that might not even exist, then there will be uh, forces like um, I don't know, infection or pus coming out of this wound saying, yeah, yeah, we're, we, uh, we are uh, an infection in a way. Uh, <laughs> I don't mean to liken anyone, you know, with pus or infection. But what I mean is that some tendencies, some occurrences always go hand in hand with things that are antithetical. And for me, that's not really necessarily satanic per se, because uh, I think for me, Satan, Satanism, um, like LaVey defined it, is much more of a proactive and positive thing. It's not merely a reaction to something that's idiotic, because we, we all know how much time we wasted in being in pointless dialogues with people who will never change their mind. There's no point. Um, so I don't know the sinister uh, Satanists what they do. Maybe they listen to, to this music, whatever it's called, uh, black metal, things like that. For me, that has nothing to do with, with uh, uh, Satanism. And I think also as well, you have, um, you know, sort of disturbed, troubled individuals and they, uh, uh, you know, they act out their, their disturbance actually. In, yeah. And then yeah. maybe they get like a, a, a little shorter prison sentence if they claim they were, you know, Satan made me do it or something. Yeah. That's been the case so many times, you know, and then they get reformed and start being Bible thumpers in prison and then they get <laughs> off uh, earlier. Yeah, quite a few examples of that. <laughs> um, okay, well, I mean, this has been great. Uh, can you tell us about any upcoming projects you might have? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's hard. We are quite active on, on uh, many different fronts. But for instance, uh, now I'm working on promoting this book. Uh, but of course, there are many other books that are, are happening. I'm working on uh, one that's um, another crossover from, from the film world. I've, I've shot a lot of documentaries, these interviews with artists, for instance. And it's going to take me a long time, probably a couple of years, before I'm caught up with that, you know, to make all these films. But I am going to uh, release a book, again, with the fully transcribed interviews with these artists. And that will be called uh, An Art Apart. And that's something that's happening this uh, spring. So that's going to be fun. Uh, also, hopefully, an inspiring book with these sort of radical artists that talk about their creativity. That's very interesting. Uh, and then, of course, there will be not one, but two 
new issues of the Fenris Wolf coming out this spring, number 11, which is uh, summing up all the papers and lectures from a conference me and my wife, Vanessa Sinclair, had in Italy a couple of years ago, actually at the castle where Ezra Pound was, uh, was staying towards the end of his life. Um, it's about uh, psychoanalysis, art, and the occult. Um, and uh, very interesting papers there. And Fenris Wolf 12, that follows shortly after that, is like a normal Fenris, if you could say that there is such a thing, meaning a plethora, a bouquet of wild and crazy eclectic takes on occultisms, new and old. Mm. And, and just before we end, we just have to, you touched on it very briefly, but uh, humor is very important to Levay. And I always think that's a, a, you know, it's something I take very seriously. And I think he's, he's one of the few, he's like the, uh, you know, as Crowley, you know, he, he also sort of regarded um, humor as a, a sac laughter, the trance of laughter as a sacram yeah. sacramentium. And um, the, the, you know, LeVay also, I mean, I was really struck by the fact that he, d he dedicated one of his books to the person who invented the whoopee cushion. And I happen yeah. to know, I happen to know there is actually such a thing, and you can Google this, please do, there's such a thing as a satanic whoopee cushion. Oh wow! So, so well, you, you've heard it here now. You've heard it here first. That's if I've done nothing else today. <laughs> I brought that to the world's attention. <laughs> there you go. That could be our That's episode. Yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you so much for uh, giving us so much of your time. Uh, I really appreciate it, and we're going to have you back on soon, I believe, to talk a culture as well. So I'm looking forward yeah, to that. Yeah, that will be wonderful. Anytime, anytime. And we are back. I knew he was going to be a good interview. I told you. Oh, <laughs> he's yeah. a, yeah, he's a, it's refreshingly positive. I think is, uh, you know. Well, he shares he's doing the right thing. I mean, you know, he's obviously uh, doing the right thing. He's on the right path, and he's doing it in the right way, whatever that might be. And uh, so, yes, and I think that's actually, I think that speaks for itself, and uh, which uh, I think some some other people might benefit from. But <laughs> um, do you feel? enlightened somewhat more to the in a in a very dark way yeah in a, <laughs> in a, in a darkly enlightened way i must say i mean you know i, I and i mean this as a compliment i've had you know i do and have mixed feelings about the figure of anton levey and his legacy but i think this book actually does um is the book i've been waiting for for quite a long time that we you know he, it's a figure of importance I, I don't think you can ignore him and you know like i say like i say you know early in the in when we were talking uh you know we've got that perspective now you know it's been a long time since uh he's, he's passed away and uh you know and he's there's something like we can step back and have a better perspective of that of that mm. legacy and you know and and if you look at him if you try to approach him as a as a cultural and philosophical sort of figure maybe first or maybe try to disentangle that then that, that does shed quite an interesting uh, take on things I, I find yeah so the book we don't actually mention the full title of the book in the interview which, it, which like i say I, I it's there's i think it's the book that the, the i think it's the actually i'm gonna go so far it's the definitive text on on the subject i, 
That's, that's how I feel about it at the moment. Excellent. Well, it's called Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan, Infernal Wisdom from the Devil's Den. You can get it. In, it's released by Inner Traditions. It only just came out, actually. It's a brand hot off the press, as they say. Um, and we've, you know, we're very kindly sent copies by Inner Traditions. So thanks to, thanks to them again. Um, but yeah, we'll be back uh, next week with Mark Stavish. Um, we switched the interviews around um, for dark and mysterious reasons but uh, oh, well, the, the 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 house of sitting now has many mysteries mm. many many mysteries um which some some we can divulge and i mean like for example me and me and ken we, we dance around the front room to the 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 music the introduction but that's that you know that's just that's just an image i want to leave with you and one that will be coming to Instagram soon, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, the, the theme tune of sitting now. We, we leap <laughs> off our chairs and we, we we dance around the room to it. And, you know, that's just one of the many mysteries, which probably should remain a mystery, actually. <laughs> an, in, an inner order secret, as you, as it were. But, yeah. Okay, so, yeah, don't forget, uh, engage with us on social media. Just search for sitting now, one word, and you will be able to find us. And we will return next week.